0: Now, we are continuing uh, a three-week series, and it's a three-week series we've said we want to devote massive time, effort, and energy all across the church in order to get across this one subject. So it's a church-wide series. Kids ministry, student ministry, and uh, uh, community groups, we're uh, encouraging community group leaders uh, to do it. If if you've got another plan, that's okay. Um, You'll have to repent later of not following along with the questions, but it, it is a series that we're devoting to this, and for what purpose did we say? There's one driving reason for it, and there were three goals that we talked about having. The driving reason to do this series right here is, I'll put it to you in this question. Can you imagine what it would look like if we as a people were freed up to be loved by God, have that as our base identity, and can you imagine what would happen in the world if we were freed from having to force others to love us? If I was just freed up saying, God, I rest in your love— What might that cause as I then begin to walk all throughout the earth? I think that's what happened to the disciples. I think the disciples uh, were so convinced, yes, of the of of Jesus, the risen Savior, but I think that they got to a point where they were so freed up in that God loves me. And so they were willing. They had God's grace in a unique way that had been given to them. They could face all kinds of trials and persecution, suffering to the ultimate, in the in the ultimate sense. I wonder what would happen in Tallahassee if all of Wildwood Church said, I am loved by God, and therefore I don't have to earn yours. And if you give it to me, great, I'll enjoy it, but I don't have to have it. We made this statement in there, and I believe this to be true, we all need to love and we need to be loved. It's not just a want. It's not just a desire. God created us in such a manner that we need to be loved and we need to love someone else. The reason we said that is because God is love and we have been made in his image. We bear his likeness. And So this is one of those things we have. God loves and since that, we need it just as we need food, clothing, and shelter. The passage that we have been looking at is from 1 John. We'll look at the same passage every single week. We'll take a couple of different verses and talk about the different aspects of it. But there'll also be one from Romans that we're looking at uh, as well. In honor of God's Word, would you stand as I read from 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 16. It says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. You may be seated. Last week, we said we all need to love and be loved. And we said that the first understanding of the solution to that is that God is love. Today, we also have one point. Now, there's some subpoints underneath that one, but there's one point that we have today. It's really a continuation from last week. And the one point today is you are loved. God is love, you are loved. Now, let me let the cat out of the bag early on in this particular sermon. All those who are in Christ are loved. Everyone is loved in a general sense by God, it's called common grace. God's common grace that he has extended to every person who has ever existed, no matter what they think about him, whether they acknowledge him or not, everyone has a certain measure of God's love that they get to experience because God is love. So there's this common grace that is extended out to all of mankind. Everyone gets a chance to breathe the same air. Everyone eats. Everyone drinks. Everyone enjoys many of the things that we have in life. There is a common grace that God gives to all. So could we say that God loves the world? And Yes, in the general sense, we could say that his love is being experienced to a certain extent by the entirety of the world. But the special love of God is reserved only for his children. It is placed uniquely upon those who are his now, I don't think it'll take much for us to understand this. I have a general love for all students at Child's High School. Generally speaking, I want all students at Child's to thrive. I want them to do well. I want them to perform well in school. I want them to perform well athletically, especially if my kids are on that athletic team. I want them all to perform well. I want folks to thrive in a general sense at Child's. But do you really think that I have the same kind of love for a kid at child that I have yet to meet, as I do for my son. This is how it is spiritually speaking. God has a general love, of course, and his is much better than mine. It's more comprehensive than mine. It has more, far more benefit for all on the world. But he has a special love for those that are his, his children. There is common grace, and there is special grace. And in this particular book, 1 John, John is writing. I want you to hear this, 1 John 5. This would come a couple of verses later than what we have said, but this is one of the reasons that John is writing in this particular book. He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He's writing in here so that His children might be convinced that they are always going to have a relationship with him. That there's an eternity that's in front of us in which God will always be present. Now, we are loved. You specifically, you plural and you singular today, you are loved and you're loved in two ways, at least two ways. You are loved perfectly by God and you're loved imperfectly by people. I'm going to spend maybe 30 seconds on this second part in this sermon. And most of that's going to be reserved for next week. But today, you are loved specifically by God. Now, what in the world does that actually mean? Because it's great. It sits well on a, uh, on a card. Um, you can write it well. You can, you can post it somewhere. That, that's a great little tagline that we can have. But what, practically speaking, does it actually mean? How do we know that God actually does love us? What does he do that shows us his love? Because love is a verb. It is not enough to say I love someone and then simply do nothing for them in the process. That's not love. I may have an appreciation for them. I may like them. But if I'm not moved, compelled to serve in some way that's going to benefit them, I can't really say that I love them. So what does it mean that God loves his children? Now, there's lots of things that we could say, but I just want to give you a couple things uh, to start with. Number one, understand this. This is the hardest doctrine. It is the hardest thing to actually believe that God genuinely, sincerely, totally, completely, unfailingly loves you. It is the hardest truth for us to actually embrace. Many of us have fathers that we have been striving all throughout our lifetime to earn their approval and their favor. Sometimes even long after they're in the grave, we continue to live a life in which we're trying to earn the approval of our fathers. Maybe they said the words to us, but maybe they just didn't get the message across to us. Maybe it was something on our end that we just didn't receive the message properly. But we oftentimes treat our heavenly father like we do our earthly father, and as if there are still things that we must do in order to earn the right to be loved by him. So it's one thing to say it. It's another thing to experience it. I want to give you the first principle today. It's not in your notes, but just if you would mark this way. If you are one who struggles to believe that God actually loves you and we all struggle in some degree, if you really struggle to believe that he loves you, that he loves everybody else, but he doesn't if you struggle there, I want to give you one particular passage I want you to memorize. I beg you to meditate on it. I beg you to pray it, personalize it, turn it into a prayer to God and do that on a regular and consistent basis. It comes from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes this, And I pray that you, plural, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all of the fullness of God. This is so typical, Paul, in the way he writes this. He says, I am praying for you people in Ephesus. And this just represents, this is God's word speaking to the church throughout all the ages. It's good for all people in all places and all times. I'm praying that you will have power. Meaning you need something else. It's not gonna be good enough for you to just try and convince yourself of this. You gotta have supernatural power outside of yourself in order to grasp in order to get a hold of, in order to embrace, in order to rest in. I want you, to, you, you would grasp how wide, how high, how long, and ultimately how vast is this love of God. And what I'm praying is that this power is going to convince you not only that it's true, but that it's applied to you. I'm going to pray that you will experience it. You will have the knowledge of it, not just the intellectual ascent to truth of it, but the experiential knowledge of it. And that kind of experiential knowledge goes past this. It doesn't doesn't bypass this. It just doesn't stop at this. It goes from here and it sinks into all of here until it affects everything that we are. I'm praying that you will have power together with all the saints to know experientially, resting in, uh, enveloping, it, uh, being moved by the love of God. And it, it's going to start here, but it's going to end up in every Would you pray that prayer? This is God's revealed will to us. If you struggle, like the overwhelming majority of us do, Pray this. Pray that the Holy Spirit will move in power. Do you have a spouse that struggles with this? Do you have a child that struggles to believe this? Do you have a parent that struggles to believe this? A coworker that you've been praying for for a long time? A neighbor, somebody that's close to you, you know, and you ache over their pain of not feeling, not sensing that they are loved by God pray this, that God would give us the power to see it, to experience it, embrace it, and ultimately to rest in it. I promise you this, if you have had moments in your life in which you have been overwhelmed, as we sang earlier, been overwhelmed by God's love, you know what peace that brings. You are loved perfectly by God. Now, I want you to see here in this passage, there's something that is um, uh, profoundly helpful in what John tells us in these particular verses. We've been loved perfectly by God. Look at verses 9 and 10 yet again. This is how God showed, past tense, his love among us. Then it says he sent, past tense, his one and only son, into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He is using these in the past tense for obvious reasons. Christ has already come to the earth when John is writing this. He's already lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we should have died. He's already been raised again from the dead. He's ascended back to, uh, to God, sits at the right hand of him, and he now is, is interceding <clears throat> Excuse me, on behalf of the people. So John is writing in the past tense about what Christ has done. Watch what Paul does with this same topic In Romans chapter 5, we've looked at this passage before, Um, uh, uh, powerful. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died, past tense, for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates, present tense, his own love for us in this that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God currently, present tense, puts on display with the loudest scream possible that he loves us, he demonstrates, he shows. How does he continue to show us? By pointing to something that Jesus has already done. Now this is why Paul is praying for power. Have you grown up hearing this message? Christ died for your sins. Yeah, I know it's something that happened. I don't know how it affects my day tomorrow at the office, but Christ died for my sins. Not sure how it helps me right here now in this moment in parenting when I've got a child that is going crazy, and I don't know what to do, what to say. I don't know how that affects this current situation, but yeah, I know Christ died for me. It's great. I don't feel very loved by God, so why is God going to go back to something that's happened that far in the past? Well, let me try to flesh that out for us just for a minute. When Paul is writing here in Ephesians 5, when John is writing, when other passages in Scripture talk about what it is that Christ has done, it's about so much more than just this simple act of someone dying. Jesus says this, Greater love has no man than this, and he lays down his life for a friend. I have no illustration for you this morning that's going to try to draw you in emotionally to what it looks like to sacrifice. That's intentional on my part. I want us to sit for just a moment solely on the illustration of the person of Christ. The scriptures indicate that a lot happened when Christ came to the earth and then went to a cross. It indicates to us first and foremost that God, before the foundations of the earth, chose us to be his children. That before we ever breathed, before we ever said a word, before we ever had a chance to do anything on his behalf, for him, for his glory, et cetera, God looked down and chose us. He said, I want to put my love on you. He saw beforehand the condition that we would be in. Please hear this. God sees you still. He sees where you are right now. He knows the trouble that you're experiencing. He knows the pain that you walk through. He knows the joys. He sees the ways that you speak. He he sees when you cry out. He sees your life. He sees the joy that you take in your children. He sees the diligence in which you go about your work. He sees the ways in which you're trying your hardest to make things work with your spouse. He sees the ways you're trying your hardest to make things work with your kids. God sees you. He did before you were born and he continues to in this very moment. Do you remember his words to Nathaniel? I saw you under the tree. The eyes of the Lord go to and fro looking for those whose hearts are fully devoted to him. It is impossible for you to devote 100% of your heart to him. That's because we still have this sin nature that's still a part of what we do. and It's irritating and annoying and it draws me away from the Lord. But the eyes of the Lord go to and fro. He looks for those whose intention is to come after him. And in all of your failures, he sees you. And guess what he does when he sees you even in the midst of your failures? He does what I did with a child in the back room earlier. Oh, wow. When I saw that child in the back of the room earlier, I did not say, man, I wonder what kinds of gifts and talents that child can bring currently to Wildwood. I wonder how we can use that child. I wonder what benefit they can bring to us right now. I just said, oh, what a joy. He sees you. He saw you and he still sees you. Scriptures tell us that also in this act of Christ going to a cross that he made us alive. He brought us to life. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of bringing ourselves to life. The Scriptures tell us that Jesus somehow brings life to us in the same way that he breathed life into the nostrils of Adam after he formed and fashioned him out of the dirt and the earth. Jesus, spiritually speaking, breathed life into our nostrils in order to make us alive in him. He still breathes life in you now. Do you have a relationship which sucks the life out of you? We all have one of those in our life. In which someone, it doesn't mean that we don't like him, don't care for them. It just means that there's far more of me giving in this relationship than I can take. And sometimes I am giving so much that it seems as though this person is only and always taking. And at times they are sucking the life out of me. Jesus does not suck the life out of his followers. Jesus breathes life into his followers. He did it initially to bring us to life, and he does it right now. Are you tired in your spiritual pilgrimage? Are you exhausted Meet with Jesus. Spend time with him because Jesus will bring life to you. It says that he also called us. He called us initially in the same way that he called out to Andrew and Peter and John. And he said, come and follow me. He called you initially with a call that went out and said, come and follow and follow me, and your heart responded. You saw the beauty of who he was. Guess what? He still calls out to you. He still speaks to you. He still is invested in you. He still wants you to come and join him. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. He still calls out to you. I've shared this illustration before, I shared it yesterday. At this, we had a wonderful time yesterday talking about what it looks like to get the gospel in the hands of, uh, of other folks. Um, but my father used to have a, a call that he would give to us at dinner time, And it was this whistle. And if I didn't have a microphone on, I would do it um, for you. And so it's this long extended. And this little pigtail at the end there. So he had this long whistle. He didn't have to stick his fingers in his mouth yet. Piercing. No matter where we were in the neighborhood, we could hear my father's whistle. The whole neighborhood heard my father's whistle. And everybody knew that's Hal McNeely. Although I didn't forget his name until I was eight. He would give that whistle. The whole neighborhood would know. Now guess who came home to dinner? His children. He is calling to you still. He is beckoning to you. He is inviting you. He is calling you to some large things in life, but please don't miss this. He is calling you to come and dine with him, to sit With him that he might just spend time with you. He called and he still calls. He converted us. He gave us the faith that was necessary to make the transfer from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And to this day, he still empowers us. To say yes to the righteous things and no to the unrighteous things. And even when we don't say yes to the righteous things, which he has given us power to do, he still loves you and is still ready to empower you for the next opportunity. He did not just give you power one time and expect you to go and get it right and figure it all out. He continues to give you the power to live the life that he has called us all to live. He also declared us sinless. In a one time act, in a legal transaction, Jesus Christ declared that we no longer have sin. The scripture tells us that as far as the East is from the West, so far has He, being Jesus, removed our sin from us. He has taken the sin that is ever before us, that we see, that we focus in on, that we get overwhelmed with at times. He sees that and he tosses it away. He buried it. He crucified it. He took the punishment for us and he no longer holds it against us. So one time he declared us righteous, but guess what? He still keeps on telling us, you are righteous. So we can accurately say when God sees us right now, he doesn't see our sin. He sees Jesus. Jesus. And he delights in us in the same way that he delights in Jesus. And he delights in the record of us in the same way he delights in the record of Jesus. Because it's all been given to us. He adopted us. He went out and got us. And not just so that he might bestow some blessings on us from a distance. Not just he might do some good things for us as some benevolent uh, uh, giver, he brought us into his home with all of the mess that comes with family. It makes no difference whether you have adopted children or biological children or foster children. doesn't matter. Family is family. And it's all glorious. And it is all hard. And it is all messy. And there has never been a moment in my life, I can sincerely say, never been a moment in my life in which I said, I regret adopting six boys. There have been many moments in which I've scratched my head and watched some of their foolish decisions. Many moments in which I've scratched my head, beat myself up over my awful, atrocious decisions. I have never once said, I regret doing this. Because family is family. And the joy that happens in my life because these six guys are in my life far outweighs all the frustration that comes along with it. And if you were to tell me 19 years ago, here specifically are some of the struggles that you're going to face. Here's some of the nights that you're going to spend without sleeping. Here's some of the prayers that you're going to have in tears, sobbing. Here's some of the joys. Here's some of the pain. If you would have told me that 19 years ago, and and said, and by the way, you can avoid it by changing the course. I would have said, no. Knowing what I know now, every second has been worth it. And you would say the same thing about your kid. He adopted us. And he ain't looking to take you back. He's keeping you. He continues. To grow us, the song we sang earlier, there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb up. I love that line, no shadow you won't light up. That scripture, the theme in the scriptures is that God brings to light that which tries to get hidden in the darkness. There's no shadow in my life that you won't light up, Lord. There's no air that you won't show me my sin. But it's not so they might say, look at your sin. He says, oh, my child, you still haven't arrived. But I want you to know I will never stop working on you. I will never give up on you. I'll be with you now and forevermore. There's nothing that you can do to cause me to walk away from you. There's nothing you can do to to have me give up on trying to improve you. I will keep on keeping on keeping on. You may not feel it. You may look at your life and look at the growth that you've had. may feel it's a paltry level of growth. I'm telling you, I won't stop. He holds on to us and he protects us. Psalm 36, 5 and 7 tells us about an unfailing love of God. His love never fails. And remember, he is the one who defines love. Love does not define him. Finally, one day he will perfect us and he's going to remove all sin and its effects from us. There is coming a day in which God is going to say, it's done. It's time and Jesus is going to come back and the skies are going to rip open. And all of the world is going to bow the knee of submission to him. And he's going to judge the living and the dead. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's going to set up all of eternity. And all of the things that you and I hate right now, the sin that so easily entangles us, the effects of that sin on all of the globe, all of those things are going to be removed forever. And we will no longer ever have to pray that God will fix something. So he loves us perfectly now. And it's all leading towards loving imperfection, meaning the way that the world is. He loves us perfectly in an imperfect world now. He will love us perfectly in a perfect world later. And all he wants to do is just to remind you that it's coming.